Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer John Higgins explores the harmful effect of man-made noise pollution on whales and dolphins in Irish waters in A Sea of Sound. When we imagine the world under the sea, we often think of marine animals swimming and drifting soundlessly through a vast, silent expanse. It's an understandable misconception. Our sensory organs are very poorly adapted to hearing sound waves underwater. The whales and dolphins swimming off our coast, however, are all descended from hooved mammals that returned to the sea some 50 million years ago. Adapting to a habitat where sound travels much farther and faster than on land, they evolved incredibly sensitive hearing, allowing them to thrive in the rich and dynamic acoustic environment of the sea. As Simon Barrow, CEO of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, tells me, it's not a matter of imagining the world as they see it, but as they hear it. When you're interested in marine mammals, especially kind of whales and dolphins and porpoises, you have to think uh, acoustically. You know, they live in a completely different world to us. You know, we're very visual creatures. Um, we see everything, uh, whereas whales and dolphins and porpoises hear everything. So they are creating a map, an acoustic map of the environment they're swimming around in. Um, they use sound to communicate with each other. They use sound to navigate. They use sound to find fish and forage. So they're living in an acoustic landscape rather than a visual landscape that we are. So to understand the life they lead, the pressures they're under, think acoustically. I suppose if we're looking at sound underwater, why it's so important to whales and dolphins is the fact that it travels so fast. Um, sound travels five times faster in water in comparison to air. So obviously, if they're able to tap into that, it's going to be very advantageous for them in that environment. Um, another reason is that light penetration in the marine environment um, isn't very good. So, you know, rare elusive species like the beaked whales, they're going to be down at a couple of thousand metres of, of depth where they're going to find their prey items. Light isn't going to penetrate down there. So they have to have some other mechanism to be able to find food, to be able to orientate themselves. That's Dr. Joanne O'Brien, an acoustic researcher and lecturer at the Goemio Institute of Technology. I met up with Joanne and Shabelle Regan, the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group's education officer at the Shannon Dolphin Centre in Kilrush, County Clare. Irish water is one of the best places in the world for whales and dolphins. Um, we have 25 different species of cetaceans, so that's whales, dolphins and porpoises. In coastal waters, um, people are kind of likely to see harbour porpoises, which are smallest species of cetacean, to minke whales, bottlenose dolphins, common dolphins. And then in the last couple of months, we have our big whale season, and you can see humpback whales and fin whales. And then offshore, we have numerous species. We've got, all the, we've got beaked whales, we have, which are the deep diving uh, species. They're kind of found in sea canyons. Um, there was a blue whale sighted this year, which is the largest animal in the world, you know, and it was seen a couple of uh, miles off Galway. So, yeah, all of the, the baleen whales, let's say the humpback whales, they come to Irish waters to feed. So they migrate here um, for a couple of months to feed, to build up all those fat reserves. And then we've traced actually the humpbacks because we've got a, a humpback um, catalogue, photo ID catalogue, and we've traced them back to the Cable Verdes. Um, where they breed.
so I guess the humpback whales, when they produce these songs, it's on the breeding grounds. So they're trying to show how big and how amazing they are to attract um, females. Um, they, they, the songs are very, very elaborate. And I guess different, different males produce different songs. You can look at different areas and the songs differ as well. Um, other species then also produce sounds, but they're not as, as elaborate as the humpback songs. And I guess the humpback songs, because they occur within our frequency range, we have more access to them and it's easier to get them. Whereas fin whales and blue whales, they have very low frequency sounds as well, but they can be outside our audible range. If we're looking in coastal waters um, and you're getting uh, detections from fin whales, they're probably communicating over you know a couple of kilometers maybe. Whereas if we're looking in deep waters, those detection ranges are hundreds of kilometers, so that's huge. It's, you know, vast distances. Uh, a lot of the coastal species, so your bottlenose dolphins, your harbour porpoises, uh, they're here all year round. And a really good example of that is actually the resident population of bottlenose dolphins here in the Shannon Estuary. So they feed here, they breed here, they reproduce here. If you have a hydrophone in the water and you have dolphins around and if they're feeding and socialising, it actually is amazing the, the amount of sounds, different sounds that they make. They can make barks and squeaks and moans and groans. Like it can sound like really squeaky doors opening and closing. It can sound like gunshots. You know, they just have an array of vocalizations. It's it's quite amazing. Sometimes sometimes they're just whistling, um, but other times then if they're very active and you know there's a whole range of behaviors being exhibited, the, the vocalizations can really be just something else. It's it's amazing really. The research that uh, I carry out in Ireland is um, primarily based on acoustics. So looking at the sounds that whales and dolphins produce and then looking at the effects and the impacts that we have on those animals with, you know, anthropogenic and man-made noise that we input into the marine environment. Acoustic monitoring can be carried out with a whole range of different types of equipment. Um, we can go out for the, if we were just going out for the day, we could tow a hydrophone behind the boat and we can record continuously over the duration of the time that we're out. Um, for sea pods, we can put them out and we can have them on continuously listening and then they log information if they record echolocation clicks. In offshore waters, equipment can be deployed at depths of 2,000 metres or more. So basically that's where we have the hydrophone behind the, the ship and we're sitting in real time with large screens. We've got the, you know, the, the audio file running, we're able to listen, but we're also able to look at the same time so we can see spectrograms. And the spectrogram has shown us information on the detection. So we have the time and the frequency on the screen and we're able to see what's coming in. Sometimes you could be listening to that and you'd go, oh, pilot whale whistles or, oh, sperm whales. So yeah, there's very distinctive um, calls from different species that we'll be able to identify. So we would be able to go, yeah, that's a particular species. And then sometimes we'd be looking for patterns in our click detectors to try and identify, you know, rare elusive species like beaked whales. And, you know, if we are able to identify those, that's, get, that's a very exciting time when we're on, on board. Climate change, pollution, overfishing and habitat degradation all pose threats to marine life. But what effect is noise pollution having on marine mammals? So these anthropogenic sources 
are the man-made noises that we were putting into the water. So this is coming from areas where there's an, you know, lots of um, fishing, areas where there's lots of shipping. You know, if we go, if we only go out on the boat on a boat for the for a day uh, for recreational purposes, we're having an impact in the marine environment. We're putting noise into the water. It's going to have an effect on their behaviour. It could have an effect in that it might eliminate them from a particular area. If it eliminates them from a particular area, that's a feeding hotspot. That's going to have, you know, could have detrimental effects for those animals. It's a bright summer's morning in early July and with conditions perfect for sailing, I've joined Conservation Officer Dave Wall at the harbour in Dunleary. From here, we set off across the bay, surveying the area for one of the East Coast's most commonly sighted cetaceans, the harbour porpoise. Sighting harbour porpoise, 300 metres, um, angle zero to zero degrees. Okay, and what was the heading on that? Heading was north, and I think it was a mother calf pair. They like shallow waters, they like coastal waters. What we tend to find as we go across the RC is we get quite a lot of porpoises on the west side of the RC where it's relatively shallow and we'll get them again on the hollyhead side where it shallows out again and not so many in the, in the middle in the deeper water of the RC. So they like to hang around tidal fronts, they like especially to hang around headlands and they forage there on a whole uh, range of fish species. Their click frequency is, is way above our hearing, so we wouldn't be able to hear them if we stuck our head in the water now. Uh, generally, we wouldn't be able to hear harbour porpoises clicking beside us. They need sound to forage, um, so they find their prey using buzz clicks. They need sound to communicate with each other. They need sound um, for mating, um, for socialising, and for navigation. So everything they do relies on sound. The more noise there is in the background, the more human added noise there is in the background, the harder it is for them to communicate in their normal fashion. Some of the large baleen whales where they vocalize in the ultra low frequency, um, they share those frequencies with things like boat engine noise. And what you see when you analyze any sort of um, acoustic recording from from almost anywhere around our coast is there's a lot of low frequency noise and a lot of it is shipping generated noise that's not just noise from ships in the area it's noise from ships that could be dozens or even hundreds of miles away all contributing to an increased background level of noise and as i said this creates problems if you're a low frequency vocalizer and you're trying to get your message across you're having to compete with this background din as it were uh, to make yourself heard it's difficult to imagine marine mammals with such incredible sensitivity to sound having to navigate their way through the acoustic smog in our waters. But there are other man-made noises in the sea which are even more harmful. Offshore oil and gas exploration uh, takes place through these surveys called seismic surveys. And basically what you have is you've got very large vessels and they tow streamers behind them. Um, they would be a couple of kilometres long behind the vessel and often wide as well. So there, it depends on how many air guns that they will have in these. But it's, it's a big elaborate array that's behind a vessel and it's going to have a very big acoustic footprint. The air guns make really loud sound. The sound penetrates down through the water column. It go, hits off the, the bottom and the signatures that come back up 
to you know the, the monitoring devices um, allows geologists and, and various different scientists to be able to understand what's underneath the the substrate and identify whether there's oil and gas at these sites. So the bang, bang, bang sound will be, could be every, it could be almost continuous because you will have different guns and different arrays. So they could be going off simultaneous. So yeah, every 10 seconds you could have a gun going um, and that could be ongoing then at that, in, the, in that area as it moves, as the ship moves along very slowly over time covering the area that they're trying to get the knowledge on. And that could be weeks or months at a time. Now the pressure of the air guns is huge um, if whales and dolphins occurred close to it um, it would deafen them forever then that's them dead basically because they're not going to be able to find food they're um, not going to be able to navigate because they're going to have permanent hearing damage. If they occurred very close to the device it probably would have physical injuries on them. If the survey starts and it ramps up to full power and it continues for weeks on end or months on end, there is a cumulative effect there. It's continuing all the time. There's no break. So if it's if it's occurring in an area where you have whales occurring for, you know, usually they would be there for X amount of months, um, then, you know, there's an overlap and it's going to be problematic. It's, it's going to have an effect on them. It might remove them from the area and it could be an area that's very important for them for food. One way to mitigate against effects of seismic surveys is to have marine mammal observers on board. They would look out to sea, make sure that there was nothing occurring within a certain distance, and then the, um, the seismic operators would ramp up the sound. So we, we do, it's hard to know how, marine, how effective or how well we mitigate against, these, against seismic surveying as a threat by just relying on observers on board. If you have whales and dolphins like sperm whales or beaked whales, you know, if, they're, if those surveys are occurring in areas where they occur, then marine mammal observers mightn't even see them because these animals can stay down for very long periods of time. Acoustic researcher Patrick Lyne describes to me one particularly dangerous aspect of the surveys in Irish waters. In every other country in the world, we come to the end of a line and then you get to the end of it, then you stop and you come, the ship turns around. It takes about three and a half hours typically to turn the ship around onto the next line because there's a, this huge spread of equipment behind. So they have to get all the streamers have to be straight before they start the next line. Only in Ireland do we shoot the line turns every single time. And uh, we do that because of our, our guidelines, which say if you shut down at, the end of, you know, at any time, if the weather's not suitable, you can't start again. And it's just because of that. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's a nonsense, frankly. That thump train and, and, and the clicks, we think uh, are associated with uh, minke feeding. And, and at the time they were feeding on sand eels. So that kind of, zoom, zoom, zoom. Yeah. That's okay. So it, it ends the... I presume that was, uh, I presume it was the sound of a, a boat or something. No, that's the minke whale. And okay. they, they, they've got a very low frequency sound. I mean, it's just at the lower end of our hearing. There's large aggregations of minke occurring off the Irish coast. Certainly don't want to be carrying out pile driving, wind farm construction, and potential surveys while these animals might be breeding. Pile driving, the practice of pounding steel piles into the ocean floor, is part of the process of constructing wind farms. 
but it generates a huge amount of noise in the marine environment. If there's any type of um, developments planned, they have to carry out environmental impact assessments and they have to assess the occurrence of cetaceans at those sites. We could identify that you know there is a lot of occurrence at these sites. It doesn't necessarily mean that that development is going to be stopped. Obviously, you know we do have a requirement for renewable energy, so we do have to have some developments, but we also have to make sure that we keep some sites that are very, very important, safe and secure for those animals. The rules in Germany, basically, they have noise thresholds that you can't go above. And so in Germany, they don't generally have pile driving shut down because of noise thresholds being exceeded. They work within those thresholds very effectively. We think that a lot of the impacts of noise pollution are chronic. It's the long-term impacts on entire populations. As I say, a single seismic survey over a prolonged period can sonify thousands of square kilometres of ocean. Shipping noise sonifies, makes noisy thousands of square kilometres of ocean. We can see that in the background noise um, monitoring uh, data. So what long-term impact is that having on whale and dolphin populations? All of, you know, most of the species we're dealing with are long-lived species with slow reproductive rates. And it's going to take many years for us to actually figure out and to show um, categorically what those long-term impacts are. And by the time we discover what they are, you know, who, who's to say it's not going to be too late. It was mid-July and I drove west to Kilkeen County Clare to talk to Sinead Mercier, a lecturer in environment and sustainability, about oil and gas exploration off the west coast of Ireland. In fantastic news, the Irish government since 2018 has actually banned oil and gas uh, exploration in terms of new licences being issued. But the issue is, in 2011, the licensing round was so extensive that most of the Irish offshore um, has actually already been licensed for exploration. And the difficulty here is that the oil and gas surveys will con continue to occur. So there's been 160 wells uh, drilled in the Irish offshore since 1962. But actually, the, the production of oil and gas has been very, very limited to only the Kinsale gas field and also the Carb gas field as well. So the likelihood of finding anything, according to the industry itself in the Oireachtas Committee that took part in in 2012, is only around 5.5%. Some areas on the Irish offshore, places that even interact um, with a Nature 2000 site or an environmentally protected site, have actually been surveyed two to three times, if not four times. And I've been told by industry insiders that these companies uh, sell the survey. They don't actually sell the oil and gas exploration uh, activity. They don't actually sell the any oil and gas. <laughs> what they sell is the potential, kind of like a speculative regime. So if you think of Ireland's Celtic Tiger history of the, the speculators, the flipping of land, basically they are flipping licenses you now have this process where the Irish government is mapping the land, not for the eyes of the people or the understandings of the people, you know, which is what a marine protected areas process should be about. It's not only about environmental protections, but also about the cultural connections and heritage um, connections as well. Like if you take the word environment, it means environs us. The landscape and the, and the land and the nature is separate from human beings. It, it surrounds us and the human being can extract from it at will. While the term, which is what the term Timpalocht means, Timpal Urin, 
while and that's often used as kind of a byword for environment in Irish, but the actual word for nature is unchohil, um, which I think gives a really evocative understanding of how the language, you know, which is a pre-colonial language, understands nature as the lived-in life unchohil. It's a world that we engage with every day and that we cannot extract ourselves from. In late August, I was lucky enough to get a place on board the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group's research vessel, the Celtic Mist. The voyage would take us along the south coast, from Cork to Waterford, surveying the sea for whales and dolphins as we went. So it's early Monday morning. I'm at the marina in Crosshaven in County Cork. And I'm on my way down to the Celtic Mist. On board the boat, we're going to have, uh, there's a diverse group of members, marine biologists, and people with a general interest in whales and dolphins and protecting them. So I'm really looking forward to meeting them. As I come down now to the Celtic Mist, beautiful, tall sailing yacht, the blue bow, and I can see the captain on board already, sorting out his ropes at the steering of the boat. Hello. Captaining the Celtic Mist for the week is Skipper Paul Hanna. We're going to go out past the Daunt Rock and head, head sail uh, down towards Kinsale, out along the 50 metre contour where we'd hope to encounter whales. Mary Townley and her daughter Orla Mannion have their binoculars in hand diligently scanning the water from the bow of the ship. It's the second time in the Celtic Mist and we're here because of our shared passion for the wildlife of the ocean. It's, it's an incredible opportunity to be out in the sea in a very unspoiled part of the world and be looking for mammals in their native um, space. So uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. From her vantage point on the starboard side of the ship, Marine biologist Claire Kelly has her binoculars out and her camera ready. We use water identification as a way of identifying individual animals. And for dolphins, it would be um, their dorsal fin. They have unique notches or markings that they develop over time from interactions with one another. And, um, yes, <laughs> you know, play, the play in the rough and tumble of dolphin life, yeah. So, yeah, it's important to have the, the camera out. <laughs> Not long after sailing past Kinsale, we begin to see our first dolphins. Suddenly, we spot a large pod, at least 10 common dolphins together, all racing towards the old head of Kinsale. Oh, the birds are going crazy. Their target, a shadowy patch of water near the foot of the cliffs, where a huge flock of seabirds are calling in a state of great excitement. Wow. Gannets hover and then drop from the sky at incredible speed, piercing the water and whatever shoal of fish lies beneath like sleek white spears. Within moments, the dolphins have joined in the feeding frenzy and as we watch, the surface of the sea churns and boils with activity. 
marine biologist Tess Peters drops a hydrophone into the water to see if she can pick up some of the sounds the dolphins are making as they feed. So can you explain how echolocation works? Yeah, um, well, dolphins have lots of fatty tissue, kind of fatty and other liquids stored in front of their brain, which is just in front of the blowhole. Um, and they have air-filled sacs around the nasal passages, which they use to make the clicks. And then the fatty tissue in front of the blowhole is then used to direct the clicks in a certain direction to send out the sound waves. Um, and then when those sound waves like hit off like land or rocks or food or anything, they bounced back. So the echolocation, there, there is there is it a constant noise that they're producing all the time when it's pretty mm-hmm. present? Um, yeah, it's usually pretty constant. I think they can do around a thousand clicks per second if they want to, which is very accurate to find their prey, and um, which is obviously very fast moving as well. So they need to be able to get instant relay back from the food. Over the next couple of days, the Celtic mist travelled along the coast as far as Dunmore East in Waterford. It was my last day on board, and sighting conditions were perfect as we left the harbour. We'd been told by local fishermen that dolphins were in the area, and sure enough, as I looked out across the sea towards the black and white stripes of the Hookhead Lighthouse, I heard the first excited cry from a crew member. Followed quickly by the glint of one fin and then another. Oh, there's a baby... Oh, wow. Wow, a mother and the smallest little calf. Oh, amazing. And they're swimming side by side, back and forth across underneath the water, underneath the water, underneath the boat. Amazing. So beautiful. Wow. Oh, it's a gorgeous calf. And they're swimming just under the surface. Oh, there's two sets of mothers and calves. Oh. <laughs> she was just bringing over I received a call from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group stranding officer, Stephanie Levesque, to say a dead cetacean had been reported at Spanish Point in County Clare. So I got a report yesterday of a common dolphin that was stranded at Spanish Point. So I came down with my stranding kit to get the regular samples. Um, And then right away I noticed that this was an odd case because the animal's tail was unfortunately missing. The peak stranding season is usually, you know, in the the winter period. So um, January, February, March. So this year it was really February, March where we got the majority of our records. So in March alone we had about 100. So I mean there were multiple animals being reported a day. Sometimes they're just, it's just the topography of the of the seabed. So it's, uh, you know in Kerry there are certain areas that's, that are hot spots for live strandings just because they'll chase their prey into these little you know inlets and lagoons and then they just get caught with the tides. Then you'll have the animals 
that when they live strand, they just look sick, you know? So it could be because they're ill, you know, they're in, in bad health, they're of old age. And then you have ones like this guy, you know, that, that probably drowned in a fishing net. Stephanie coordinates a network of volunteers around the Irish coast who've been trained in recording and collecting samples from stranded cetaceans. So if I have a stranding, let's say in, in Donegal, then I will get in touch with my volunteers over there, ask them to come down to the stranding. If the animal looks sick, the best thing you can do for it is just kind of make it comfortable. Um, you know, you put seaweed on it and kind of make its last moments as comfortable as possible. And if you do the health assessment and you think, okay, this animal is robust, he's healthy, he's kicking, he's trying to get back to the water, then that one would definitely be a suitable candidate to refloat. Seven northern bottlenose whales have died after they washed up on a beach in County Donegal yesterday. Just one of the pod is still alive. Nicola Coyle from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group has been up all night trying to help. Keeping noise levels really low and applying wet uh, materials or towels. On the 19th of August 2020, seven deep-diving northern bottlenose whales live-stranded on Rosnowla Strand in County Donegal. Shibel coordinated the response. We quickly came to the realisation that there wasn't anything we could do for these animals. And that's a very hard thing to acknowledge because you want to help them, especially, you know, when they are alive. That's very hard to, to give something palliative care and trying to make them as comfortable as possible. It often looks like you're not doing anything and people can get quite annoyed at you for not actively trying to save them. But making something as comfortable as possible, you know, in those kind of hours before its death is, is still very important. But it's definitely, it's tough, you know, it takes, it takes a toll. We went up and we took samples um, of the, the blubber um, of skin and tissue for histology to try and understand a little bit more about why they died. And there was also some in the Faroe Islands, some in Scotland, some in the Netherlands. This is a widespread event of a deep diving species and all healthy uh, looking, you know, they were in reasonably good condition. They weren't emaciated or underweight. Um, so based on the kind of widespread event of that, we would suspect acoustic trauma of probably sonar activity. Beaked whales, of which Ireland is probably one of the best habitats in Europe for these species. 95% of their lives are spent beneath the surface. They really only come to the surface to breathe. We have the continental shelf slopes just off to the west of us. They drop from 200 metres down into three, four, five, even 6,000 metres. And they're riven by canyons and slopes. And beaked whales prefer those habitats because that's where uh, their preferred prey, deep water squid, live. We have resident populations of beaked whales that are there year round. And we also know from strandings that they breed here, that they, they, they actually calve here in Irish waters. And it's thought that the mid-frequency active sonar, this military sonar, um, scares them essentially. And it, it can result in their heart rate quickening. And this then results in symptoms akin to the bends in divers. So scuba divers get the bends, forms air bubbles in the blood, and then that affects the, the nervous system and can have other impacts as well. But obviously then you have this permanent and temporary threshold shift in their hearing ranges as well. And if, if it's temporary threshold shift and their hearing is impaired temporarily, then obviously maybe they'll just go hungry for a few days or they might just 
they mightn't find their way and that's when they can come ashore. Sometimes they can be refloated and they might go off again. Sometimes they come in and they'll die. And if it's permanent, if their hearing doesn't re recover from the exposure to these types of sounds, so, you know, then they're totally lost. But there has been events over the last while where we've had very rare species like Cuvier's beaked whales, Sarabee's beaked whales, True's beaked whales, live stranding coming in in very fresh condition. A number of years ago, it was one of the first times that we've ever had an incident like it where we've had lots of animals coming in here and in Scotland. Between July and October 2018, a total of 118 beaked whales washed up dead in advanced stages of decomposition on Irish, Scottish, Icelandic and Faroese coasts. Backwards modelling of their, their drift patterns has kind of indicated that all these animals have come from one particular area. And that's very much the kind of profile you'd expect um, if they were impacted by something like a, a single source acoustic trauma. If a cetacean is alive sometimes and they come ashore, you have a better chance of getting to them and identifying an acoustic trauma. Um, if you are able to get to them in time, you can look internally and you can look for um, you know, air bubbles and gas bubbles, embolisms to see if they have shot from, from the depths. And, um, but also you can see acoustic trauma um, in, on, the, on the skull of the cetacean. So, you have to get to them very, very fresh for that and you have to have somebody who's very skilled in, in taking out the ear bones and so on to be able to analyse a lot of that. So it's very difficult to get. This stranding represents the largest single stranding of beaked whales anywhere in the world. Potentially what they have caused in 2018 is, is a population significant event. A population loss of greater than 5% of the population. Could be talking hundreds of animals. We know that it wasn't a d disease, it was a sudden event because they all died at roughly the same time. Off the Irish coast, there are probably areas where you can do sonar exercises with much less impact rather than carrying them out in an area which is, you know, with a high population of beaked whales. They should be talking to the MPWS before they uh, conduct exercises, they should be talking to NGOs in Ireland before they conduct exercises. The Irish Navy should be also monitoring who's doing what in Irish waters. The Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme conducted a full investigation into the strandings led by Dr Andrew Brownlow. In September 2021, with the report soon to be published, the Royal Navy made a statement admitting for the first time that it had been operational off the west coast of Ireland when the acoustic trauma event is thought to have occurred. This admission by the Royal Navy that they were actually in that area at that time is huge. It's like a, a broken window and you've got a, a boy with a football standing outside and nobody else is around and he's saying it wasn't me and it's like you're looking at him going like there's a broken window, it was obviously broken with a football and yeah. While traumatic acoustic events are suspected in some of the more unusual strandings seen on Irish coasts, other factors such as climate change are also having an impact. Since 2011, we've seen a big increase in common dolphin strandings, um, especially in the winter. And we would associate a lot of this with um, fisheries bycatch in trawlers, certainly offshore big trawlers. But it's interesting, there seems to be a movement from offshore waters into inshore waters of common dolphins. So the increase in strandings, some of that could be an increase in abundance. Some of the increase is probably associated with fisheries. Some of the increase is probably associated with changes in distribution abundance and movement driven by climate change. And some of the increase in strandings is probably caused by someone we haven't identified yet. 
it's it's a real challenge and it's really important not to um, blow the whistle go oh my god this is terrible all the fishermen are terrible and look what they're doing you know because they don't want to catch dolphins no one's interest um, but if you identify you know a fishery that has a particularly high bycatch work with them to reduce it or legislate to reduce it whatever works inside in the island where my family come from right for me to see whales and dolphins and stuff like that my first memory of a boat was i remember sitting on a nappy on the side of a boat that's how young i was i was maybe Two probably. That's when I remember my first time in the water and seeing it go past and being held on the side of a boat. So I'm on the water since then. Patrick Murphy is CEO of the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation based in Castletown Bear, County Cork. Our job is really trying to fight for the fishermen, trying to get them more fish, equal rights and, and equal opportunities is what we're after now these days. We have 15% of the fish uh, of the pie and um, that means we don't have enough. Of course there's um, uh, there's um, bycatch outside in the water. There is no nets with a traffic set of traffic lights or, or a doorman on the front of it to say you can come in and you can't, right? So we're to the fore of introducing technical measures. And when a study comes up, we put our hands up first to be able to do it and do it right. Now, if the fish are scarce in the oceans, and things have changed due to climate change, these mammals will take more risks, right? But fishermen don't go out to catch these fish. They do everything to avoid these fish because it interferes with their operation. You can imagine somebody catching a whale inside a net now, like, how's he going to get it out? The only way that he can do it is destroy his gear. But not only that, he has to let all the other fish go as well too. So, like, nobody intentionally goes out. They avoid them like the plague, you know what I mean? All a fisherman does is to go out and make a living. He do, it's not as if the fisherman wants to go out and kill every fish in front of him. We can go out and we can say, designate all of these areas, protect you know the cetaceans all year round and all of these areas, but we have to be realistic as well when it does come to people making their livelihoods in those areas. Look at um, the farming communities now and look at the push towards farming for biodiversity and look at the incentives that are there for farmers to do that. We need something like that in the marine environment so that if if fishermen aren't going out or quotas are being reduced, is there a way that you know we can look at fishing t- towards biodiversity or fishing to help biodiversity in the marine environment, especially if we're looking at these marine protected areas? So if somebody says, listen, if you stay out of this area, you'll have a, 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 it's a marine protected area, fish will spawn inside that area, it'll be a carbon sink, we're going to give you a contribution for staying out of that area on a continuous basis, not a once-off payment, so that it'll balance the books that you can pay your crew, pay your expenses. Do you know what I mean? Then fine, pay him. Then he won't be under such pressure to try and catch the fish. The fishing industry is having a massive impact on top predators, on whales and dolphins, on seabirds, and through overfishing, through bycatch, and also through entanglement. There are ways to mitigate it, though. Like, you can have a fishery that is sustainable and without fishermen and fishers actively participating in marine protected areas and getting on board with the concept it'll never work. I think that is the biggest challenge to to the Irish government is to make sure that the the coastal communities are not just informed and um, consulted but actually integrated and they're the ones that are driving it. But what is an MPA? And what will they need to be effective sites for marine conservation? 
Sometimes um, these will be full protection, so you won't be allowed certain activities like fishing. You know, there might be a no-take zone, which basically means there's no fishing allowed. But often it actually means at, let's say, for the uh, migratory whales that are only here for a couple of months, we can section off areas and say this area is really important at the moment for feeding whales. Um, so this, you know, X, Y uh, activities aren't allowed for these particular months of the year. Ireland were supposed to reach 10% um, maritime protection by 2020. We have passed that, we're in 2021 now, and there's only 2.13% of our marine, marine environment protected. So, you know, we're not even close to half of what we should be. We're supposed to be at 30% protection by 2030. I suppose one of the key value to marine protected areas, if they're done correctly, is that they create a network of habitats that are protected. So you're not just protecting one area for one species, you're protecting a, a network and hopefully an integrated or well-integrated network of areas of good habitat for a range of species, including whales and dolphins and porpoises. The Shannon Estuary is designated, um, it's one of two areas designated for bottlenose dolphins um, as an SAC. So it's a really, really important area for bottlenose dolphins. Looking at areas from, say, the Shannon here, all the way down to the Blaskets, which are important for harbour porpoise. So looking at these network of sites and seeing, could they, be could they be joined up even? Or could we really looking at bigger areas for designation and what other species are there as well, like other marine mammals, but also other species of um, fish, invertebrates, um, um, all of those other species that sometimes we forget about because we're so focused on the, the marine mammal side of things. We know, you know, there are shark nurseries. We know that blue whales and and uh, bottlenose dolphins and fin whales all feed, particularly in the porcupine basin, um, and that's extremely important for their mating rituals potentially as well. That um, that should really be in a, a, a marine protected area or not Natura 2000 site. I just think that the power of Ireland on a pivotal on a global stage is that if we can do this right, if we can ensure the MPA's process is public and participatory and has coheal at its core rather than teampluck, we can really lead to kind of a shift change across the rest of Europe, but also as well on a global level as well, such a tiny country with such a large offshore area designated as an MPA um, could just be powerful and really, really positive uh, and really kind of a reaction against that extractivist mindset globally. While these incredible animals migrate vast distances under the sea, the threats they face are also global in nature. There isn't any borders. Whales and dolphins can go wherever they want, do you know? So we work with a lot of international colleagues um, on various different projects. Um, for the humpbacks, for example, we work with colleagues in the Cable Birds. Um, so they would be researching them there when they're breeding. Then we get that information when they're, you know, they're travelling up um, on their migration. A couple of years ago we went to Iceland to follow the humpback whale migration and see where in Iceland they're going and was it, um, you know, humpbacks that were also in Irish waters and we did actually match humpbacks from Irish waters to the Icelandic waters so we know that they're the same population moving from the Cable Verdes up to Ireland and then to Iceland again. There's no point in Ireland alone uh, saying X, Y and Z and for example in relation to shipping noise it has to be at a global level to make any sort of impact because ships move globally and therefore the regulations need to be global. Um, so if we had a set of regulations that were 
at least at EU level, preferably at global level, for the amount of acceptable noise emission from um, marine vessels, that would be a start. I was interested in hearing what the government had to say about the expansion of Ireland's marine protected areas, and Minister Malcolm Noonan kindly agreed to talk to me. I began by asking the Minister how the government intends to protect marine species from the effects of seismic surveys and pile driving as the wind farm industry develops in our offshore waters. Similarly to land-based developments, uh, any proposals of developments will have to have in place uh, in in their planning applications uh, the mitigation for in their environmental impact statements for um, dealing with issues of uh, of, uh, seismic surveys and, and, and acoustic noise underwater when these essential developments, because we have to meet our climate ambitions and we have to um, uh, ramp up significantly, particularly off the West Coast, uh, the, the offshore wind potential, that huge off- offshore wind potential that exists here. Uh, and doing that, we, can, we, we have to do it in a way that is not going to be injurious to, um, to marine birds or to cetaceans or, or, or other species. We see the MPAs as an iterative process. They will continue uh, to evolve and develop over time. And within that, um, and within those protected areas, uh, issues such as uh, seismic noise will continue to be addressed and continue to be monitored to ensure that we minimise impacts on wildlife in those MPAs. The biodiversity and climate crisis we face are interlinked and it seems to me that marine protected areas represent Ireland's best chance to address both issues together. Yet it remains to be seen how bold the government will be in expanding our marine protected areas. If the sites will be properly monitored and regulated and will issues such as anthropogenic noise remain an afterthought to other interests. I'm back with Simon moored amongst rugged green islands off the coast of Connemara in County Galway on a beautiful day in early September. It shouldn't be seen as a negative thing, it should be seen as a positive thing. But aren't we lucky to have all these rich, abundant species and let's make sure that we protect them, protect the habitat to ensure that not only they're here for future generations but their populations are healthy and abundant and hopefully increasing. Ireland is, um, it's not, it wasn't declared a well and dolphin sanction in 1991 for no reason. It is a fantastic place and should be a sanctuary for all species. A Sea of Sound is an As the Crow Flies production produced by John Higgins edited by Francesca Lawler mixed by Neil Kavna. The programme was funded by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland as part of the Sound and Vision Scheme.